Part 1 of Korematsu vs. United States This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Robinson in Birmingham, Alabama. Korematsu vs. United States An Opinion of the United States Supreme Court Part 1 Decided on December 18, 1944. Please note, Part 1 is a reading of the opinion of the court only. This reading does not include a reading of Justice Frankfurter's concurrence, Justice Roberts' dissent, Justice Murphy's dissent, or Justice Jackson's dissent. For ease of listening, this reading omits footnotes, and legal citations found within the text of the court's opinion. Mr. Justice Black delivered the opinion of the court. The petitioner, an American citizen of Japanese descent, was convicted in a federal district court for remaining in San Leandro, California, a military area, contrary to Civilian Exclusion Order Number 34 of the Commanding General of the Western Command United States Army, which directed that after May 9, 1942, all persons of Japanese ancestry should be excluded from that area. No question was raised as to petitioner's loyalty to the United States. The Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed, and the importance of the constitutional question involved caused us to grant certiorari. It should be noted, to begin with, that all legal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect. That is not to say that all such restrictions are unconstitutional. It is to say that courts must subject them to the most rigid scrutiny. Pressing public necessity may sometimes justify the existence of such restrictions. Racial antagonism never can. In the instant case, prosecution of the petitioner was begun by information charging violation of an act of Congress of March 21, 1942, which provides that whoever shall enter, remain in, leave, or commit any act in any military area or military zone prescribed under the authority of an executive order of the President by the Secretary of War or by any military commander designated by the Secretary of War, contrary to the restrictions applicable to any such area or zone, or contrary to the order of the Secretary of War, or any such military commander, shall, if it appears that he knew or should have known of the existence and extent of the restrictions or order, and that his act was in violation thereof, be guilty of a misdemeanor, and upon conviction shall be liable to a fine of not to exceed $5,000, or to imprisonment for not more than one year, or both, for each offense. Exclusion Order Number 34, which the petitioner knowingly and admittedly violated, was one of a number of military orders and proclamations, all of which were substantially based upon Executive Order Number 9066. That order, issued after we were at war with Japan, declared that the successful prosecution of the war requires every possible protection against espionage 
and against sabotage to national defense material, national defense premises, and national defense utilities. One of the series of orders and proclamations, a curfew order, which, like the exclusion order here, was promulgated pursuant to Executive Order 9066, subjected all persons of Japanese ancestry in prescribed West Coast military areas to remain in their residences from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m., as is the case with the exclusion order here, that prior curfew order was designed as a protection against espionage and against sabotage. In Kiyoshi Hirabayashi v. United States, we sustained a conviction obtained for violation of the curfew order. The Hirabayashi conviction and this one thus rest on the same 1942 Congressional Act and the same basic executive and military orders, all of which orders were aimed at the twin dangers of espionage and sabotage. The 1942 Act was attacked in the Hirabayashi case as an unconstitutional delegation of power. It was contended that the curfew order and other orders on which it rested were beyond the war powers of the Congress, the military authorities, and of the President as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and finally, that to apply the curfew order against none but citizens of Japanese ancestry amounted to a constitutionally prohibited discrimination solely on account of race. To these questions, we gave the serious consideration which their importance justified. We upheld the curfew order as an exercise of the power of the government to take steps necessary to prevent espionage and sabotage in an area threatened by Japanese attack. In the light of the principles we announced in the Hirabayashi case, we are unable to conclude that it was beyond the war power of Congress and the executive to exclude those of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast war area at the time they did. True, exclusion from the area in which one's home is located is a far greater deprivation than constant confinement to the home from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. Nothing short of apprehension by the proper military authorities of the gravest imminent danger to the public safety can constitutionally justify either. But exclusion from a threatened area, no less than curfew, has a definite and close relationship to the prevention of espionage and sabotage. The military authorities, charged with the primary responsibility of defending our shores, concluded that curfew provided inadequate protection and ordered exclusion. They did so, as pointed out in our Hirabayashi opinion, in accordance with congressional authority to the military to say who should and who should not remain in the threatened areas. In this case, the petitioner challenges the assumptions upon which we rested our conclusions in the Hirabayashi case, he also urges that by May 1942, when Order Number 34 was promulgated, all danger of Japanese invasion of the West Coast had disappeared. After careful consideration of these contentions, we are compelled to reject them. Here, as in the Hirabayashi case, we cannot reject as unfounded the judgment of the military authorities and of Congress that there were disloyal members of that population whose number and strength could not be precisely and quickly ascertained. We cannot say that the war-making branches of the government did not have ground for believing that in a critical hour 
such persons could not readily be isolated and separately dealt with, and constituted a menace to the national defense and safety, which demanded that prompt and adequate measures be taken to guard against it. Like curfew, exclusion of those of Japanese origin was deemed necessary because of the presence of an unascertained number of disloyal members of the group, most of whom we have no doubt were loyal to this country. It was because we could not reject the finding of the military authorities that it was impossible to bring about an immediate segregation of the disloyal from the loyal that we sustained the validity of the curfew order as applying to the whole group. In the instant case, temporary exclusion of the entire group was rested by the military on the same ground. The judgment that exclusion of the whole group was for the same reason a military imperative answers the contention that the exclusion was in the nature of group punishment based on antagonism to those of Japanese origin. That there were members of the group who retained loyalties to Japan has been confirmed by investigations made subsequent to the exclusion. Approximately 5,000 American citizens of Japanese ancestry refused to swear unqualified allegiance to the United States and to renounce allegiance to the Japanese emperor, and several thousand evacuees requested repatriation to Japan. We uphold the exclusion order as of the time it was made and when the petitioner violated it. In doing so, we are not unmindful of the hardships imposed by it upon a large group of American citizens. But hardships are part of war, and war is an aggregation of hardships. All citizens alike, both in and out of uniform, feel the impact of war in greater or lesser measure. Citizenship has its responsibilities as well as its privileges, and in time of war, the burden is always heavier. Compulsory exclusion of large groups of citizens from their homes, except under circumstances of direst emergency and peril, is inconsistent with our basic governmental institutions. But when under conditions of modern warfare, our shores are threatened by hostile forces, the power to protect must be commensurate with the threatened danger. It is argued that on May 30, 1942, the date the petitioner was charged with remaining in the prohibited area, there were conflicting orders outstanding, forbidding him both to leave the area and to remain there. Of course, a person cannot be convicted for doing the very thing which it is a crime to fail to do. But the outstanding orders here contained no such contradictory commands. There was an order issued March 27, 1942, which prohibited petitioner and others of Japanese ancestry from leaving the area, but its effect was specifically limited in time until and to the extent that a future proclamation or order should so permit or direct. That future order, the one for violation of which petitioner was convicted, was issued May 3, 1942, and it did direct exclusion from the area of all persons of Japanese ancestry before 12 o'clock noon, May 9th. Furthermore, it contained a warning that all such persons found in the prohibited area would be liable to punishment under the March 21, 1942 Act of Congress. Consequently, the only order in effect 
touching the petitioner's being in the area on May 30, 1942. The date specified in the information against him was the May 3rd order, which prohibited his remaining there, and it was that same order which he stipulated in his trial that he had violated, knowing of its existence. There is therefore no basis for the argument that on May 30, 1942, he was subject to punishment under the March 27th and May 3rd orders, whether he remained in or left the area. It does appear, however, that on May 9th, the effective date of the exclusion order, the military authorities had already determined that the evacuation should be effected by assembling together and placing under guard all those of Japanese ancestry at central points designated as assembly centers in order to ensure the orderly evacuation and resettlement of Japanese voluntarily migrating from military area number one to restrict and regulate such migration. And on May 19, 1942, 11 days before the time petitioner was charged with unlawfully remaining in the area, Civilian Restrictive Order Number 1 provided for detention of those of Japanese ancestry in assembly or relocation centers. It is now argued that the validity of the exclusion order cannot be considered apart from the orders requiring him, after departure from the area, to report and to remain in an assembly or relocation center. The contention is that we must treat these separate orders as one and inseparable, that for this reason, if detention in the assembly or relocation center would have illegally deprived the petitioner of his liberty, the exclusion order and his conviction under it cannot stand. We are thus being asked to pass at this time upon the whole subsequent detention program in both assembly and relocation centers, although the only issues framed at the trial related to petitioners remaining in the prohibited area in violation of the exclusion order. Had petitioner here left the prohibited area and gone to an assembly center, we cannot say either as a matter of fact or law that his presence in that center would have resulted in his detention in a relocation center. Some who did report to the assembly center were not sent to relocation centers, but were released upon condition that they remain outside the prohibited zone until the military orders were modified or lifted. This illustrates that they pose different problems and may be governed by different principles. The lawfulness of one does not necessarily determine the lawfulness of the others. This is made clear when we analyze the requirements of the separate provisions of the separate orders. These separate requirements were that those of Japanese ancestry, number one, depart from the area, number two, report to and temporarily remain in an assembly center, number three, go under military control to a relocation center there to remain for an indeterminate period until released conditionally or unconditionally by the military authorities. Each of these requirements, it will be noted, impose distinct duties in connection with the separate steps in a complete evacuation program. Had Congress directly incorporated into one act the language of these separate orders, and provided sanctions for their violations, disobedience of any one 
would have constituted a separate offense. There is no reason why violations of these orders, insofar as they were promulgated pursuant to congressional enactment, should not be treated as separate offenses. The Endo cases graphically illustrates the difference between the validity of an order to exclude and the validity of a detention order after exclusion has been effected. Since the petitioner has not been convicted of failing to report or to remain in an assembly or relocation center, we cannot in this case determine the validity of those separate provisions of the order. It is sufficient here for us to pass upon the order which petitioner violated. To do more would be to go beyond the issues raised and to decide momentous questions not contained within the framework of the pleadings or the evidence in this case. It will be time enough to decide the serious constitutional issues which petitioner seeks to raise when an assembly or relocation order is applied or is certain to be applied to him, and we have its terms before us. Some of the members of the court are of the view that evacuation and detention in an assembly center were inseparable. After May 3, 1942, the date of exclusion order number 34, Korematsu was under compulsion to leave the area not as he would choose, but via an assembly center. The assembly center was conceived as a part of the machinery for group evacuation. The power to exclude includes the power to do it by force if necessary, and any forcible measure must necessarily entail some degree of detention or restraint, whatever method of removal is selected. But whichever view is taken, it results in holding that the order under which petitioner was convicted was valid. It is said that we are dealing here with the case of imprisonment of a citizen in a concentration camp solely because of his ancestry without evidence or inquiry concerning his loyalty and good disposition toward the United States. Our task would be simple, our duty clear. Were this a case involving the imprisonment of a loyal citizen in a concentration camp because of racial prejudice, regardless of the true nature of the assembly and relocation centers, and we deem it unjustifiable to call them concentration camps, with all the ugly connotations that term implies, we are dealing specifically with nothing but an exclusion order. To cast this case into outlines of racial prejudice without reference to the real military dangers which were presented merely confuses the issue. Korematsu was not excluded from the military area because of hostility to him or his race. He was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire, because the properly constituted military authorities feared an invasion of our West Coast, and felt constrained to take proper security measures because they decided that the military urgency of the situation demanded that all citizens of Japanese ancestry be segregated from the West Coast temporarily, and finally, because Congress reposing its confidence in this time of war in our military leaders, as inevitably it must, determined that they should have the power to do just this. There was evidence of disloyalty on the part of some. The military authorities considered that the need for action was great and time was short. We cannot, by availing ourselves of the calm perspective of hindsight, now say that at that time these actions were unjustified. 
affirmed. End of part one.